Welcome to our weekly Wednesday Shir. upcoming This Shabbos, Shabbos Pashas Vayigash. We spoke many times. Shabbos is meaning is Baruch Vekuli Yemen. All days of the week are benched, are blessed by Shabbos. The days before and the days after. This Shabbos bridges Hanukkah, which was the past week, which finished on Monday. Although, if Rishchidosh Tevis would be only one day, then Hanukkah would have finished on Tuesday, actually. And the coming week, Habal in the Teva, we have one of the most severest fasts that the Jewish nation has in the year, which is a Sarabatevis. <coughs> Tenth day of Tevis, the day that the walls were breached, and this was the beginning of the end. Well, it's the beginning of the destruction, the beginning of the end. It's not a 24-hour fast, it's only a day fast from Alesa Shachar to check your, lo- your local listings when sun rays begin until, say, Sakechavim, until nightfall. Um, we are ma- we are makel by fasts, and usually it's 36 minutes after the sunset, after Shkia, whereas usually nightfall is a little bit later than that. Shabbos Pashas Vayigash. We said this many times, but it's a very relevant thing to talk about, subject matter to talk about. Yehuda was a king. Malchus Yehuda, this is one of the kingdoms that we have in the Jewish nation, of the kings of Yehuda, the Shevet Yehuda. It's also Malchus Beis Yosef. David comes from Yehuda. So Yehuda was a king. Kings basically, on a general basis, uh, know how to be politically correct, to say the least. And the question arises. We see in the beginning of the parish of Ayigash, Elav Yehuda, Yehuda approaches Yosef. He doesn't subtly come over to him, he approaches him. And we heard, we spoke about the Medrash, how Yehuda stamped his foot, and the sons of Yosef were standing next to him, and they showed him at the pizza, they sent him flying, and he thought they was, he thought he was the strongest, and he found out what strong means. All the interesting Medrash. The fact is, though, Yehuda came on attack mode. When he saw that wasn't getting him anywhere, 
He starts talking softly. Don't get angry at your servant because you're just like Pare, you're so special, you're so holy, you're so great, you're so wonderful. Everybody knows you don't do, you don't work that way. Everybody knows first things first, you negotiate. First things first, you try to be passive, you try to be nice, you try to be calm, you try to be <coughs> amicable. Let's talk, let's negotiate. Things don't work, you start getting a little bit more aggressive. But first things first, you go to the table. First things first, you talk like a human being. Binyamin was taken away. They knew they couldn't return home without Binyamin. They'd be in major, major trouble. The father would probably die of a heart attack if he heard it. And Yehuda put down a guarantee on him. Yehuda's guarantee for, you, for Binyamin. No. Yehuda was upset, rightfully so. He wanted Yasef to give him back Binyamin. He knew this was not legit. He knew this whole thing was a setup. Binyamin was not a thief. He wasn't taking Yasef's goblet. We know the human being has a very interesting mechanism called re- reflex. Someone gets their hand stuck in the door or bangs into something hard. They scream right away. Very rarely do you see somebody slam a hand in the door and start negotiating with their hand. Do you hurt? Do you not hurt? Could you be broken? Could you not be broken? Can I overcome this? Can I feel it? Can I get the pain out? Can I? And then they find out it's not going to work. They start to scream, ouch. It doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. Astut Veishaitman. When it hurts, you scream. Yehuda's reaction, hurting for a fellow Jew, for his brother, for his little brother, was first things first, he went to, with a harsh approach. question begs to ask was Yehuda selfish what does that mean selfish how could it have been selfish here Yehuda put down a heavy guarantee Arevus as it's called he was up to the kazoo in a guarantee here that he brings back this boy His Elam Haba, his this, that, a lot of things that he put down in order to get his father to agree to let him be responsible for the boy. It wasn't a boy anymore, but by the way, just for the record. And he stood to lose all this. He stood to lose all this. On top of that, Logistically speaking, the only other person that spoke up to say that he would take responsibility for Binyamin was Ruvain. But Ruvain, in his own spiritual way, had some really, really interesting approaches. 
And we didn't touch on it. I touched on the Shabbos, Shabbos by the table, but I didn't touch on it this year last week. And we're not going to live in the past, as we say. We're moving ahead. We're in Vayigash now. So it was only Reuven and Yehuda finally took on the responsibility and his Arevus was accepted. All the other brothers, well the truth is Shimon wasn't there, but of the other brothers, nobody said a word. Nobody said, don't worry Tata, we'll take care of him. Nobody said, Tata, a my responsibility. Only Yehuda. And Yehuda was the only one that was actually convincing enough to get his father to let him go. If Chas Shalom something happens, and they come back without the, without Binyamin, and they return without Binyamin, and the father has a heart attack and dies. Think about your own reaction to that as a sibling. You would blame Yehuda. The nature of the beast dictates. And one would blame Yehuda, who took the responsibility, because you're responsible, and you now were responsible for your father's death, because he died, because you did not bring back Binyamin, like you said you would. So now, we look at it a little different twist. Yehuda had a lot riding here, shall we say. He had a lot on the on the on the cuff. Not only did he have their promise to his father and what he guaranteed to his father and everything, all the guarantees that he put down, the collateral that he put down for it. If God forbid, if Chasashalom something happened to his father, his siblings would never let him live it down. I, you all understood we had to go. You all understood the only way we could go was get uh, bringing Binyamin with us. But everybody was placid. Everybody was in the, almost laid back and didn't say boo about it. Didn't get into it, didn't get involved. They were neutral. So, technically speaking, the question asks now, Yehuda's brazenness and brave approach to, uh, to, to Yosef, was it fully the Shem Shemayim? Was it with the full intentions of God's mission to save a fellow Jew, to save a brother? Or was it to save his own skin and to save face? To save his own skin and his own world to come and everything else that he put up as a collateral by his father? And to save face amongst his siblings who are all going to never let him live it down if something happened to the father because of it. An interesting question that doesn't usually register. 
we don't really find that as a approach, as a normal approach to what happened here, as an approach. Yehuda was no fool. So he said Yehuda was a king. Yehuda's approach, his first reaction, was the true reaction. He jumped and banged and stomped his foot, etc. because he felt that this child was unjustly being imprisoned. He felt that he has to save a fellow Yid and that his brother cannot be hurt. Not if, not if he can help it. What he spoke was Dvarim Yetzman Alev. Came straight from his heart. The fact that Yosef didn't react because Menashe and Ephraim stood at his side gave mixed messages to Yehuda. And Yehuda thought, maybe, perhaps, I didn't make it, I didn't make the impression, I didn't make the right impression, maybe it didn't come off right, because they showed me up, they one, they up, show, they one up me, in the show, in the uh, showmanship. So maybe, perhaps, I didn't make, hit my mark, I didn't get where I had to go. I didn't break through with where I needed to break through. He's a hard heart. And didn't feel my Dvarim Yetzman Alev. The things that came directly from my heart. The pain that I felt. And that's one of the reasons they didn't recognize Yosef to begin with. He was different. (coughs) He was different than them. Where was his sensitivity where was his understanding of what he had to how he had to treat a fellow person when siblings when everybody is here crying and begging and pleading on his behalf and this man cold bloodedly can sit there and say ignore them practically to which he changed his tune maybe this guy doesn't understand and maybe maybe if I talk to him softly maybe he'll be different But it wasn't not politically correct with what Yehuda did. Yehuda had a lot riding on this, as we said. But Yehuda was not looking at anything around him. Yehuda was focused completely and totally on the one issue on saving Binyamin. Had there been other Paneas, had there been other thought patterns, Tater would not talk about it. Tater would say there was a conversation with Yosef and Yosef let Binyamin free.
the fact that the Tera talks about Vayigash Elav Yehuda, this shows us that Yehuda, which is Malchus, which is the kingship of the Jewish nation, is what needs to represent the Jewish nation at all times. And therefore we await and aspire for the Shiach ben David, Shevet Yehuda, to take us out of Golis. Because we know that that's where the salvation, or if we want to call it salvation, I don't like the word, it sounds too secular, that's where we know the Yeshua comes about. From Mashiach. A Mashiach will come and redeem us. And we have to understand from this, the Vilna Gon translates not only the Pasuk, but also the Trap. The Trap are the signs for, with which we read the Torah. Vayigash Elav have the Trap. There's a word for it in English, but I don't remember what it is ever. Vayigash Elav have the Trap Kadma Ve'azla. Vayigash Elav. And Yehuda is Revi. Revi Yehuda. The translation of the word Kadma went forth the Azla and stood and he, tra- and he, he marched forward. Who? Revi'i, the fourth son. Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda. Yehuda is the fourth. It was not by circumstance that Yehuda took the the bull by the horns. Not by circumstance that Yehuda brazenly confronts Yosef. And it's ultimately the two of them, Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben Yehuda ben David, that will redeem us. He understood very well we need to join forces, we cannot be separate. We cannot sit on the different sides of the fence. We need to be united. United we stand. A little awkward story with the Kotzke. man came to the Kotzke and he said, he used to be very wealthy, and he lost all his money. And, on top of that, he lost his wife. Now, throughout the time when he was wealthy, and his wife was around everything else, he had a Jewish maidservant. A woman. Jewish woman lived in his house. And every week, he and the maid would buy a lottery ticket. And he would hold the tickets. Even now, when he lost his money, he used to scratch the other cupcakes to buy these lottery tickets. Recently, he says, I found that she won the lottery. I knew if she won the lottery, if she knew she won the lottery, she'd run off. She'd take her money and leave. I wanted her to stay, and I also wanted to be able to be part of that money, admitting to being a very, very selfish and foolish person. 
So before telling her that she won the lottery, I asked her to marry. I, I didn't want to go tell her straight out right to marry me. So I had a shatchan go in between, and in between shatchan and everything else, and we got married. Once we were married, I told her that her lottery ticket won, and that we are actually indeed rich. And she said to me, I don't know about that. I said, what? She said that this, this lottery ticket in particular, I had said that if this lottery ticket wins, I'm going to give it to my father. So really, this lottery ticket belongs to my father. So we have no money. So the man came to the Kutzkerov, no more, no less, to say, as a Mekach Toes, I don't want to be married to this woman. It was, a, it was all a mistake. It was a selfish mistake. It was a foolish mistake. It was a disgusting mistake. Whatever it was, I don't want to be married to this woman if she has no money either. Kutzker looked at him. I said, you really don't understand. You don't see two feet in front of you. HaKadosh Baruch also knew your brain. Also knew who you are and where you're at. And Achman al-Tzad your wife, this guy's wife was Nifta. And yes, it was in the stars that he should marry her. This woman. Unfortunately, the Milo, they saw that you're not the sharpest tool in the shed, and you're not going to go out and marry this woman, Stamazi. So this was dangled in front of you. And they were Gehofen, and you married the woman. And now the thing that had to be dangled no longer needed to be there, so it was taken and put away, put where it had to be. Leaving you where you are. And therefore you have no have a meaning, no right, no anything, anything connection in divorcing this woman. Showing us that HaKadosh Baruch runs the world in a way that sometimes we don't get where the pieces fall in. We don't understand why we met this person, why we had to do with this person, why we're connected to this person, why we don't connect with another person, why we... We don't. We can't make chesbenus. We can't make mathematical equations of everything we do, every breath we take, and every bite of food that we eat. Yet we do. In our own way, we make a lot of interesting calculations in life. Whether it be a format of a diet that we undertake very irradical or irrational or radical diets, very aggressive diets, and deprive ourselves. Whether the person becomes anorexic, as they call it, or any of these things. And you have those that just don't care, and that will indulge, and live, and eat, and be merry. And eat, drink, and be merry. And do and how they want. We need to know and understand Hakadosh Baruch who runs the world, and we need to live that way, and we need to lead our life that way, and we need to continue that way. And although many things don't fall into place, although many pieces of our puzzle don't seem to match, 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the artist Eng Tzayar Kelekeinu. There's no artist like the Ben Shalelam, like the Ebishtel himself. And therefore, sometimes, yeah, a person needs to go through certain things and certain, certain stages so that they find the right business, they find the right path, they find the right money, they find the right basherta, they find doesn't fit, it doesn't fit the MO, it doesn't fit the, what I had in mind, it doesn't fit the master plan, there's something out of whack over here, it doesn't fit, we don't have to know how it fits, we have to know, HaKadosh Baruch is in charge, So when Yehuda ready to throw himself into a fire, stomps forward, knocking down the cities of Pisim and Ramses, according to Amelish. He understood very well. He's going and marching in God's hands. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is controlling exactly what's going on here and will be, succeed. Will be, he'll be successful and HaKadosh Baruch will see to it that he succeeds because the mission was totally Shem Shemayim. Moving on to the parasha, we find that Yosef confesses to his brothers that he's indeed Yosef. It's an interesting lotion that we use. He makes a confession to his brothers. First of all, I don't recall, but there are certain punishments that Yesu was given for allowing his father to be called his servant. So there's a lot here that Yesu had to do tshuva for. When he finally fesses up and tells them who he is and sends an invitation to his father to come down to Egypt. He shows them, Take with you wagons. And afterwards, when you will arrive, the brothers will arrive to Yaakov and tell him, Eid Yosef Chai, Yosef lives, Taylor tells us, he's not going to believe you. When you show the Agolis, the wagons that Yosef sent, Vayares Agolis, the Torah tells us, Yaakov saw the Agolis, the wagons, then, only then, Vatechiruach Yaakov Aviyem. Yaakov's life, the spirit, rejuvenated. Chazal explained what was implication what implication did Yaakov make did Yosef make with these Agolis, these wagons it was obviously something that he was hinting to Yaakov letting him know reminding him 
Yosef tells Yaakov, the last time we were sitting together and studying Teda, we were learning the laws of Egla Rufa. The Egla Rufa, we discussed once, of the person that was found dead in a field, and we don't know how he died, and we're concerned that he was killed, so we measured the, the nearest town to see which he came, from where he came, from whence he came. And that town has to bring a sacrifice known as Eglarufa to repent, to say that the our hands did not spill this blood. We sent if we would have left our town, we would have given him say the Laderach, we would have given him what whatever we would have to give him, we would have given him. The eglah then was taken, the calf was then taken, as a calf that was not worked, that never did any work, etc., etc., and it was decapitated, and the whole law of the eglah rufa. You may look it up. So this is the last thing they learned. Who knew that? Only Yosef and Yaakov. They were alone together learning. Therefore, Yosef sends a hint by sending Agolis. And when he saw the Agolis, Yaakov says, Aid Yosef b'nichai, my son is alive. Agolis can mean wagons, it can mean calves, eagle. Kazal Ed, and they explain, the joy of Yaakov was double. First of all, his son Yosef lived. Second of all, he didn't get swallowed up in Egypt. He still is a believer in Yiddishkeit and Teda, he learned from his father. And that being the hint of the, of the wagons. So these two things gave Yaakov this tremendous satisfaction. Let's look in a little bit to the midst of Eglarufa. A comparison to the din of Eglarufa and the situation in which Yosef was in. And that this brought about the simcha and the sign she Yosef b'ni chai. As we spoke before, the mitzvah of Egla Rufa is the responsibility of the elders of the town when they found a dead body in the field, in order to know, and they don't know who the Ritzeach, who, who the murderer was, they have to call out, after this whole process, Our hands did not spill this blood, and our eyes did not see it. This is all 
symbolized. It shows us, it teaches us the responsibility of the elders and of the Sheikh to Yisrael to everything that goes on around them. If you give me score at home, give mud and say to them, hey, in the bottom of Ahmed Bayes. And the Mishnah talks about this very fact. Lady Nuhu. We did not see him leaving, we did not send him off without food. Spiritually speaking, there is a severe, a very strong responsibility for elders, for the elders, for the spirit and the life of every Jew. Elders could be elders in chronological and age. Elders could be in spiritual in, in knowledge. Elders could be somebody that's just simply a next generation above the person and thereby has a responsibility to either educate or to support morally or to give strength, to give chizuk to the younger generation. And therefore, when one finds a Jew, like a corpse lying in a field, lacking total spirituality, lacking any connections, lacking any bond with anything or anyone and the person feel, falls under the probably weight of the sada, the field which is this worldly whirlwind which we live in the elders need to know that this is their responsibility they need to reach out and they need to see to it they support, they give chizuk, they give life, they breathe life into these people. How? By giving them mezainas. What is the mezainas? Teda mitzvah. So they can withstand the hardships that surround them in the field, in the worldly matters. This too is what Yasef hints to his father. I did not leave Tera. I did not leave Mitzvahs. Even going down to the lowest of the world, the lowest thing in the world, Ervas Oretz, to Mitzrayim, and I was captured amongst the Goyim, the nations, I still in all, still in all, I stood with my righteousness, with my Judaism, 
and I did not become Rahman al Islam a Khalul Nafal Basada. I did not become a corpse in laying in the field. So therefore Yaqib was granted was was blessed or achieved this tremendous simcha by knowing about Yosef so much so that the Ruach Yaakov, he was totally invigorated, he was totally given back a new, a new breath of life, as if he got a new, a, he was given a new lease on life. When we worry about a fellow Jew spiritually, that they should not fall into the entrapments that the world has for them, we too merit to this extra kayach, to this extra spiritual life. <coughs> we too understand it personally on a personal basis. No good deed. <laughs> We used to say, no good deed goes unpunished. You just, the expression is, why do you hate me? I never did any favors for you. Um, honestly, honestly, Not honestly, in a more real basis, no Jew loses out by doing a favor for a fellow Jew. And a very interesting story that shows just that. The guy was riding on a bus, and he happened to be a chassan. He was engaged to be married. And he's on the bus, and the guy in front of him is also a chosen. He didn't know the guy from Adam. Also a chosen. And he's talking to the guy next to him. Doesn't know if he knew the guy. He didn't know the guy. It didn't matter to him. He was talking, and he was talking quite loud. Yeah, we all know that guy. He talks on the bus or on the train really loud. And... He tells him, I'm getting married, and I really wanted to go see this certain tzaddik before I got married. I wanted to get a blessing from the bracha. However, they won't give me an appointment. They say there's no appointments available, they can't get me in. I'm really pretty disheartened, I'm really disappointed, I'm really... It, it means a lot to me. Not that this guy, this neighbor, has anything to do with him or with, the, or with his rebbe that he wants to go to. He's just unloading. Maybe a total stranger, maybe a friend. His chassan hears this, the other chassan, and he reaches over and taps the guy on the shoulder. And he says, excuse me, I don't know if you know it, but you're talking awfully loud. And the bus driver, in the front of the bus, hears you too. I heard your 
discussion. And I heard you wanted to go see this particular Rebbe. Interestingly, my uncle is the Rebbe's son-in-law. I'll call my uncle for you and I'll get you in. Wow. That's so kind. That is such a shkachapratis. That's so beautiful. What a wonderful thing you're doing for me. Your mom is giving me, as he said, a new breath of life. Thank you so much. What's your name? Back and forth. When are you getting married? On this and this date. Really? Me too. Oh, that's fantastic. How beautiful. Where are you getting married? In this and this hall. Huh? What's the huh? I'm getting married in that hall. What do you mean you're getting married in that hall? I'm getting married. I, there's no two holes in that place. It's only one hole. I'm getting married in that hall that night. You sure it's the same night? He says, yeah, same night. Kitsa, Chassan runs home. The one who's going to do a favor for the other one arranges the favor and tells his father, hey, Tata, we got a problem. And he tells him what happened on the bus. Father, this is not possible. Invitations are out, everything's out. He calls up the hall. He says, I I thought we made up him. He says, yeah, you called about this date. Very nice of you. But you didn't put down any deposits. You don't put down a deposit, you lose your date. Especially if somebody else comes along and puts down a deposit. Now, let's not get into the logistics. Whether or not the holder is responsible to call and tell him, listen, somebody else wants this date. You come here to put down a deposit, good. If not, I'm giving it to somebody else. Whether that would be actual halacha, whether it would be considered the finimishud sadin whether it would be actually a would it be whatever it might be. The fact is the whole didn't do it. But now <laughs> what do you do? You can't even get married in the hallway over there. But the invitations are out, both weddings. The guy who didn't give the deposit has no rights to it at all. Guy who gave the deposit, but don't pay the money. It's his night. So they were just geholfen, and two blocks away, because there was a big auditorium, and this other chassan got married over there. So when he came, people came. They said there was a sign saying that this wedding was two blocks away. So it wasn't catastrophic. All the guests that came knew exactly where to go, and it was fine. The weddings happened. What if? Not a big what if, a little small what if. The guy wasn't listening to his conversation. It's irrelevant. We're not going to delve in what, when, where. We're going to look at the one factor. He did a favor for the other one and said, I will get you a bracha from this tzaddik. You will go into this tzaddik for a bracha. And in the merit of that, he was spared. I don't know what. 
call it what you want of his wedding night being destroyed, ruined. The embarrassment, the, the, the hurt, the whatever. Label it however you want to try. He was saved from the Chas Shalom, one of the most terrific nights of his life. By doing a favor for a fellow you. Let us focus again on Yaakov and his journey to Mitzrayim. Yaakov leaves his house. The Agolas and everything proved that Yosef's alive. He wants to desperately go see his son Yosef. Packs up everything and they're going to Mitzrayim. Yabba Baba Boy They reach to a place called Be'er Sheva. In Be'er Sheva, HaKadosh Baruch reveals himself to Yaakov. And says to him, Altira Mer the Mitzrayim, don't be frightened to go down to Mitzrayim. Kilagay Godla Simchasham, I'm going to make you a big nation there. Really, seriously. Why did HaKadosh Baruch have to wait to come to tell him this in Be'er Sheva? The fact that he started going already, that he left his house, that he packed, he closed the door, kissed his mezuzah to leave, showed already that he was going to Mitzrayim. And HaKadosh Baruch should have come and told him, don't worry, you'll be fine, it'll be good. Rashi explains, it was not easy for him to leave to go to Chutzlaretz. Means to say, according to Rashi, Yaakov wasn't scared of Mitzrayim. That didn't bother him. Leaving Yisrael was his problem. And therefore, Kaddish Baruch speaks to him to give him chizuk. Yaakov knew, as we said before, with full faith and confidence that Joseph was was good. He was on board. He was one of us, and he did not falter in once, even one second, in the slightest. So he knew he's going down to Yosef. He's going down the Chalutin. He's going down to Eretz Goishin. So he was no longer concerned about the negative influence on his children. This was not a concern. Yehuda was sent down first to Krishna to set up a yeshiva. Yosef was ruling and he was from. Maud, what else can you need?
but when he gets to Be'er Sheva, the border, and he sees he's going to cross the border, this didn't work for him. And therefore, Akash Baruch comes to him. Yaakov had tried once already, this whole leaving it so. And wasted and got burnt for the 20 plus years in Choron, Atzlachem. Now, all of a sudden, leaving it to throw, started to rock his boat. Because at this point in time, Yaakov's extended family was 70 people. The old Jews merit to see that very soon. Children, grandchildren. Not even have to wait the great grandchildren to be able to amass 70. Amen. He was not responsible for 70 souls. And therefore, he was now establishing the Am Yisrael. <coughs> the fitting place to raise them, that he'd be guaranteed, is the Yisrael. Now, Yaakov, looking around at this entourage, which was he, which he was accompanying, which was, with, with whom he was traveling, knowing these all his children, his grandchildren, knowing the responsibility for them, and feeling that in order to raise them properly, like good, proper Jews, it should be an answer as well. And he was worried. Even though he had a yeshiva set up in Goshen. Therefore, Kadosh Baruch comes to promise him, to guarantee him. Al-Tira, Merda Mitzrayim. Don't be frightened to go down to Mitzrayim. I'll make you a great nation. Akash <coughs> Baruch is guaranteeing him. Dafke Mitzrayim. The Jews will be made a great nation. Dafke through going down to Mitzrayim. That the Am Yisrael will grow to a great and to a big nation. Greater than even if they would have stayed in Yisrael. However, HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells them, Al Titzta'er. doesn't say, sorry, HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't say, Al Titzta'er, don't pain yourself over it. He says, Al Tira, do not be frightened. Taking away from Yaakov any suspicions that Chas V'Sholom, Chas V'Sholom, Chalila, any of his children would go astray. How did he take away that pain? The fact 
going out of Eretz and going down to Golos. Not exactly doing the trick. The opposite. You're making this even more painful. But rather, when a Yid is basking or sitting in Golos, they reminisce and they remember the true source. And thereby, knowing where they come from, who they are, because the oppression around them reminds them of who they really are, this helps them overcome the difficulties of Golos. And this is a lesson to each and every one of us in our short stint that we're going to have here in Golos still. On one hand, we do not have to fear the Golos. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu sent us here, and we're not living in Eretz Yisrael, this is the hand of HaKadosh Baruch Hu has us here. And therefore HaKadosh Baruch Hu will definitely look after us, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu will definitely strengthen us to overcome all the tests and all the trials, etc., And Dafka, the way, because we're going to overcome and we're going to strengthen ourselves to out, to overpower the hardships of Golas, Dafka through that, Am Yisrael be able to reach its ultimate greatness. Therefore, we need to Concentrate and be aware of the pain that we're going through now in Golis. Chalila to any Jew that should feel comfortable in Golis, but rather we need to feel the ultimate pain of our situation we're children who were driven away from the table of our fathers and we need to call out Ad Mosai how long will this be and Dafka the Tzad and Golis and the Tviya Fagula the screaming the calling out Fagula this will speed up the Bias Mashiach Tzadkenu and the Gula Amitiz Vashlema Tonight we celebrate Hey Tevis. It is customary to buy a Sefer on Hey Tevis. Why? What does a Sefer have to do with Hey Tevis? Everything. The whole story and the whole happening and what happened and where it went and how it was taken and why it was taken. Svarim of the Rebbe's left the property of the Rebbe. And not only did they leave by some person taking them, the person felt they had legal rights to them. And they literally were spent thousands of dollars in court fees, in lawyers, until ultimately the judge said, yes, the letter belongs to the Hasidim, and the Svarim belonged to the Hasidim, 
and we receive the we receive the svarim in return, to which we called out di dan notzach. And the Rebbe cites the words di dan notzach. We are victorious from a story which we already spoke about many times of the battle that went out against evil spirits over the waters and ultimately when they slew, they, they were able to slay the evil spirit literally were able to see blood in the water knowing that we were victorious this called out and may we merit this Haytavis to all call out together we are victorious and we will victoriously destroy the walls of our Golas and let us out back to Yerushalayim in HaKadosh to receive the Binyan Beis HaMikdash HaShlishi on this very Shabbos before even the Shabbos and good Yom to all.